You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Good morning. This is Cheryl Linker, and this is your Saturday edition of the Master Gardener Hour on America's Web Radio, and I am here with my guest, Ann Parsons. Good morning, Ann. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Thank you. I'm so glad you're here with us. Ann has recently located to the metro area from South Florida, Coconut Grove specifically, and we're going to talk today about your love. Tell us about where you came from. Well, as you said, I um, relocated here just recently. I've been living in Miami, Florida, in Coconut Grove, and I've had the pleasure of working at a very special garden there called the Kampong, which was David Fairchild's home, his estate. And um, his name is on another garden, Fairchild Tropical Botanical Garden, but the Kampong was his passion and his... um, became his passion and his love, and he um, spent his retirement years there planting a lot of the trees there, uh, building his home there, raising his family. It was a wonderful, it's a wonderful garden. And for everyone, if you have never had the opportunity to go to Coral Gables and drive out Douglas Road, Mm -hmm. it is an incredible journey from the busyness of Coconut Grove and especially of Miami. And it's just, I happened on this place two years ago, the Fairchild uh, Tropical Botanical Garden, and then was so interested in David Fairchild that I had to make an adventure there. So, Anne, I really, really appreciate you being here. But I will say... um, Anne has recently taken a really fabulous position at another cool place in Georgia, the Smith Gilbert Gardens in Kennesaw, Georgia. So, Anne, tell us just a little bit about your background, uh, where you grew up, and how you got into this world of green. Okay. Well, I grew up in Virginia, in southwest Virginia, in a town called Blacksburg. And Blacksburg is the home of Virginia Tech. And my father was a professor at Virginia Tech, and um, I ended up going to college there, as did my brother and sisters, and uh, so I'm a Hokie. I have uh, my undergraduate degree is in agriculture education from Virginia Tech, and after getting that degree, I moved to Hawaii, where I taught in a preschool. And then from there, I went to Canada to a north... um, the northern part of Ontario to work on an Indian reserve called Bearskin Lake. And this was through a project with the, that was sponsored by the Mennonite Central Committee. And they do work very similar to Peace Corps. They do short-term projects as well as longer-term projects. So this was a short-term proje- gardening project with Indians and um, specifically gardening and helping them to um, garden, learn about uh, growing uh, vegetables, specifically potatoes, that was the most popular one. And that experience was really um, sort of a watershed experience for me. And from that, I decided I wanted to further my education. So I came back um, to Blacksburg. I interviewed about 10 different departments in 
at Virginia Tech to talk with them about um, my interest and also what research opportunities might exist. Through that process, I met a woman named Diane Ralph. Um, Diane is was one of the founders of uh, Horticultural Therapy the, and okay, with the American Horticultural Therapy Association. She also with, was with Extension and very um, strong with the Master Gardeners in Virginia. So she helped um, organize that in Virginia. So in the course of talking with her, I felt there was a real connection there. Because what I really liked was the idea of connecting people and plants. So I... Thus, you started as an education yes. major. Okay. Mm-hmm. Makes total sense. So I um, decided to pursue a master's degree working with her. And while I was at Tech, she suggested that as part of my work, I should have um, an experience working in horticulture therapy in a botanical garden because my research was focusing on developing a horticulture therapy program at a garden. So at that time, there were only three gardens in the country that offered horticulture therapy, and one of them was in Ohio. It's the Holden Arboretum outside of Cleveland in Mentor, Ohio. So I went there to do an internship in horticulture therapy, and I had the opportunity to work in a nursing home in um, in a prison and uh, with children in a psychiatric ward. But what I really discovered that I loved was working at the Arboretum. And so when I came back from that, I said, this is what I want to do. I want to I work at a botanical garden. Well, after going to Hawaii, I think that probably uh, whet your appetite for tropical. Yes. I'm sure that happened. Yeah. I always like to ask um, who your horticultural heroes are of my guest, and I think you probably just describe your mentor that kind of led you in the right direction. I, I would say absolutely, Diane Ralph, but I would even go back to my childhood, my, my grandmother. Um, my grandparents lived on a farm outside of Blacksburg, and I, my grandparents had a, had a garden. I remember growing up helping in their garden, and my father in our backyard had a garden, and he gave all of us, all of his children, five of us, uh, a little plot in his garden. So I would say, you know, from childhood, my my grandparents and my um, father really influenced me as well. And there was sibling competition for growing the prettiest tomatoes? Always. Of course, of course, of course. <laughs> and I tell you, it's, I, I think half of... What I love about doing this show is really finding out people's history and what makes them tick. And I swear, nine times out of ten, it's it goes so much deeper than the university level or even the high school mm-hmm. level. It goes back to the childhood level. But let's talk a little bit about um, Kampong and what an incredible place it is. I actually used Ann's name in vain. I was in Miami in February and... I had one afternoon to go to this gorgeous place, and they were shooting a really high-end, big-time commercial there. And I called, and it's by appointment only, um, or at least some of the time it's appointment only. And they said, well, you can't come. And I said, well, you know, I'm... Anne's just moved to Atlanta, and she's the director of a place that I volunteer at. And can I come? And they said, come late. And so I got to go and spend like two hours in the afternoon, and it was fabulous. But as Ann said, this is the home of David Fairchild. And 
on I wish this was television now because on Ann's um, PowerPoint presentation, one of my favorite pictures is a picture of uh, Mr. Fairchild sitting by the pool. And it was a really hot day in Miami, even though it was February. And I thought, I would love to get in that pool. But anyway, he just seems like such a cool man. He passed away, obviously, I think, 1950s. Okay. So um, just just kind of like start and tell his story. And I also thought it was really cool that his wife, Marion, was the daughter of Alexander Graham Bell. Which all those guys, I mean, they're thinkers and doers in South Florida. So tell us a little bit about him to kind of get people going on who, who this guy is. Well, David Fairchild was um, a plant explorer. He was one of the early plant explorers in this country. And he had a very interesting background. He was born in Lansing, Michigan. He grew up in Kansas um, he graduated from Kansas State College of Agriculture with a BA and a master's degree. And through his um, through his studies, through his uh, background, he had the opportunity to travel some. In one of his travels, he met a very influential man named Barbara Lathrop. And what I find interesting about David Fairchild, as well as other um, leaders and and CEOs, is often how a turn a chance meeting in their life influences their future decisions. And so I think it was that case with David Fairchild. He met Barbara Lathrop, who was a um, wealthy philanthropist. And um, and through that meeting, um, they became friends. And Barbara Lathrop actually was the one who influenced David Fairchild to become a plant explorer, to work for the United States Department of Agriculture. And he also helped um, underwrite many of his travels and plant collecting expeditions. And so in 1897 was when David Fairchild began working for the USDA. And he, he took, Let me interrupt yes. you. He had a really interesting title, which I thought was the head of foreign seed and plant introduction of the U.S. Department of Agriculture. That's Does that title still exist anymore or is... I'm not sure if that title, he actually started that department, and it was through him and the men that he hired that they um, influenced American agriculture because they were tasked with going around the world, looking for new varieties of plants, new species to introduce specifically into American agriculture to improve our crops, corn, soybeans, rice. But um, they also influenced um, whole industries. For example, he hired... um, a man named Walter Swingle, who, through Swingle's work with citrus, built the citrus industry in Florida. Wow. And Wilson Popino was another hire of David Fairchild's. Uh, Popino is the one who introduced avocados and brought in new, better varieties of avocados. So I was I was shocked at the varieties of avocados. I was shocked at the varieties of mangoes. I mean, like in the hundreds, I think. Uh, yes. And it was just uncanny. But when Ian's talking about Mr. Fairchild and Lathrop being world travelers, the list is like a travel log of the planet. It's incredible where they went. I mean, you want to go into that just a little bit? Well, he went to, he really focused um, on Asia and that part of the world, but he did go around the world, Singapore, um, Sri Lanka, then not known as Ceylon, uh, Thailand, Australia, New Zealand, Fiji. 
Fairchild was a world traveler, and he and his... Was this prior to his marriage to Marion? Um, it, some of it was prior, and also he and Marion made many trips together. Okay. And um, one of their most famous trips was on the Cheng Ho, uh, literally a slow boat to China where they did collecting. Many times Fairchild actually stepped down from his official role at the USDA to do these travels. And when he would come back, the USDA would hire him back, often at a higher pay grade. And so um, it was a great opportunity for the United States as well as for Fairchild personally. And through these travels, he um, founded a, the plant introduction station that's down in Miami. It's actually south of um, the Kampong. And that is the southernmost United USDA plant introduction station. And so he was living in um, Maryland at the time, working in Washington, D.C., and then he and his wife would often uh, travel to this USDA station to, to look at the plants he had brought back to see how, how they were progressing because this was a test site to see how... So plants. he would bring the seeds from all over the world mm-hmm. or cuttings? Mm-hmm. Both, yeah. and then propagate them there, and then he would monitor their growth to introduce them into our agricultural system. Right, to see how they would fare in this in this climate, you know, in different in the United States. And so I guess he had a green ticket to bring things in from uh, around the world. Well, interestingly, the um, a lot of the regulations that ex- exist today did not exist then. Okay, and it was okay. in fact through. Um, his some of their introductions that they the protocol was developed that exists today with um, you know what you introducing plants Mm -hmm. and we're going to take a quick break with the master gardener hour and we will be right back when gardening is part of your life it brings so much healthy eating the freshest most local produce and playing in the dirt at bonnieplants.com you'll find all you need to succeed When you grow bonnie veggie and herb plants in beds or containers, you'll know where your food comes from. Homegrown veggies and herbs ready for cooking, eating, and enjoying. And you did it. So get growing with Bonnie Plants. With all the back and forth in today's politics, it seems as though the Constitution gets lost in the mix. If you want to brush up on your Constitution, then join Michael Conley every Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. for the show Our Constitution on AmericasWebRadio.com. Hi, I'm Paisley McDonald, and I'd like to invite you to listen to my show, At Home with Paisley, every week, Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern, for practical advice and stylish living for your home and office. Quick stakes. That's Q-U-I-K stakes are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quickstake.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of quick stakes. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's quick stakes, Q-U-I-K stakes, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. This 
is Cheryl Linker, and I'm here with this Saturday's edition of the Master Gardener Hour, and I'm delighted to have Ann Parsons, who is the di- former director of the Campon in Coconut Grove and currently the director at Smith Gilbert Gardens in Kennesaw, Georgia. And we're talking about David Fairchild and his wonderful um, contribution to American, American agriculture and American horticulture, American mm-hmm. beauty. I mean, he his garden in Coconut Grove is fabulous. So we're kind of talking about him bringing all these seed seedlings back to the United States and getting things introduced. What I'm going to hold up something to Ann, and I don't know what this is, but I really want to know. There is the number 103,988 on one of Ann's slides. That is the number of plant introductions that came into the country under Fairchild's leadership, brought in by him as well as the people he hired in that department, uh, the plant introduction department. That's how many new cultivars, new new species, new varieties they introduced to the United States. That's impressive mm -hmm. to think that one under one man's regime, over 100,000 new plants were brought into our country. Because I read, you know, that he was, you know, credited with like 30,000 tropicals or something like that. But this is just under his direction when all the plant hunting was going on. Yes. And not everything was positive, I have to say, that kudzu was introduced. Um, was he the kudzu man? He, not him personally, but it was through. It was, it was under him. Mm-hmm. And as well as Malaluka. Um, so Privet? I'm not sure about Privet. Okay. Um, but as a result of the, some of the things that have become problems, that is where the protocol was developed. So let's talk about that yeah. a little bit. We were starting on that road. So now, of course, there is a very strict protocol on what can be brought into this country and how it can be brought in. And all of that is a result of some of the work that was done under Fairchild. So although there were some problems through his plant introductions, there were also, um, as a result, many positive things came from that, which is the, now the protocols that are in place and, and following a, a more strict policy. And I know that for some travelers that can be an inconvenience, but it really is designed to help protect this country and the plants from um, pests and diseases. For example, there's now a... Um, the red bay ambrosia beetle, which is impacting um, the avocado industry in Florida. No way to prevent it. It's decimating whole avocado groves. That was through a, you know, a, a careless... Um, careless traveler. Wow. So, I mean, yeah, there are absolutely reasons for this. And, you know, the plants that he brought were so numerous. I mean, what... If you just had to, off the top of your head, say the top five things that either he was most proud of or that have made the biggest contribution to agriculture, what would you say those are, Anne? Well, one of the ones is actually not in agriculture. It's the ornamental cherries in Washington, D.C. That was through um, Fairchild. And, of course, the cherry blossoms are going to be coming into full bloom up there uh, shortly. So that was through him, that introduction. He introduced the date palms into California. Oh, that's huge industry. Yes. Because that's not only – that's 
ROL. Okay. It's very influential. And I would also say, um, you know, one of the things Fairchild wanted was for Americans to try new fruits, tropical fruits. He was passionate about tropical fruits. And, um, you know, his mission was with agriculture and specifically um, agricultural crops. But he really had a true passion for tropical plants and tropical fruit. And he wanted Americans to try mangoes, um, you know, bale fruit. That was one of his favorites avocados, things that sometimes you might see them in the store and not recognize what they are, but some have become commonplace. Oranges, of course, that was through Walter Swingle. One of the so oranges are not native to North America. Well, Walter Swingle, in some cases, they're, for example, with mangoes, mangoes were growing in Florida, but what Fairchild did was bring in varieties that were better varieties, new varieties that were um, more prolific, shipped better. So um, not in not every case did he introduce a brand new species, but he, they were also looking for better varieties to improve what was already growing here. And so one of the things at the Kampong that we often told people was Fairchild influenced the American diet in such a profound way by introducing new fruits, more fruits, that um, previously had not been had not been um, common in this country. Very interesting, and I mean, when you think about this, um, well, I don't know. I don't even think. I'm sure because he introduced them, you know, early in this century. I really don't even think I ever had an avocado until maybe the '60s. I mean, in Georgia, I mean, we had. Just didn't do all the, you know, things like mangoes and papayas and, you know, avocados. They weren't in the common grocery store. It's true. It, and now you can go in and mangoes are there often year round. Papayas, you mentioned, they're year round. Coconuts, you can find whole right, coconuts. Right, right. It used to be just, you could just right. buy them packaged and I don't think people really knew where the coconut flakes came from. Right. So, um, those kinds of things are attributed to David Fairchild and the work, the men that worked with him, and the um, and the plant introductions that he did. So that's really interesting, um, Marion and um, David. When did they make the move from Maryland to South Florida to build their home there and just really get involved in that community? Well, David Fairchild was making um, trips down to Florida to the to the. Um, introduction station they had three young children and um, this was back in the late 1800s early 1900s so travel was difficult and slow and so they would travel down there for him to check on his plants and they decided at some point that they wanted to purchase property um, in Miami so that it would be more convenient for them in these trips so they this was about 1916 they found a a piece of property along Douglas Road. It actually goes from Douglas Road to Biscayne Bay. And one of my favorite stories is from uh, David Fairchild's book that he wrote about the Kampong in his retirement called The World Grows Round My Door. Great title. Great title. Great title. uh, But it's well worth looking for on on Amazon or uh, one of the... um, you know, out-of-print book prices. Right. And so he writes in this book, they drove down the dirt road. There were already many trees on the property and, and some little houses. And Marion said, David, we must have it. 
And so she wrote to her parents to ask for an advance on her inheritance to buy the property in 1916. They bought it for $25,000. She wrote to her father, Alexander Graham Bell, and asked for the uh, money to do that. Okay, guys, a lot of you may have been to Miami and heard of a place called Vizcaya. Vizcaya is like, I don't know if it's three doors down, but you can kind of go to the point on David Fairchild's property and and look over and see Vizcaya. So you get the picture. It's the big water. You're overlooking Miami now. Miami probably obviously wasn't like Miami now, but it's a gorgeous, gorgeous piece of property with an inlet and... It's just, it's very magical. And he later went on to build, how many acres is the Fairchild Botanical, Tropical Botanical Garden? Well, Fairchild Tropical Botanical Garden is 88 acres. And that actually is an interesting story in itself. Um, there was a man named Colonel Robert Montgomery. Colonel, Mo- Colonel Montgomery was... Um, a tax accountant, a CPA, and he actually uh, was originally from Connecticut. His home there, he's loved conifers, and his home there, um, his conifer collection was later donated to the New York Botanical Garden. Well, Colonel Montgomery ha- had a summer home in, um, or a winter home in Miami. It was a little south of the Campong uh, um, in Coral Gables. And this was a 120-acre estate. And he became passionate about palm trees. So he was collecting palms from around the world. People were coming to his private home, to, to the palmetum there, to look at these palm trees. And at some point, Colonel Montgomery thought he didn't want all these people coming to his private home. He decided to um, create a public garden. So he found some property about a mile from his home uh, down the road on Old Cutler Road, and he purchased 88 acres and to, to create a public garden. He wanted to name the garden for David Fairchild. He felt his name did not carry weight in the horticultural world. He was a tax accountant. But he thought David Fairchild's name had a lot of weight in the horticultural world. So he asked David Fairchild if he could use his name on this garden. And this is such an interesting um, story and a dynamic between these two men because there's a whole series of letters between them where he where they're talking about this. And Fairchild said no. He said, I've seen too many men put on a pedestal during their lifetime and fall off. If you want to use my name after I'm dead, that's fine, but not while I'm living. So Montgomery did not get where he was by taking no for an answer. He continued to, to um, try to persuade David Fairchild. He enlisted his good friend Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, who lived down the road from Fairchild in Coconut Grove, who wrote The River of Grass and mm-hmm. was very influential with the Everglades. And ultimately Fairchild agreed to have his name on that garden. So that is how his name is on that garden, Fairchild Tropical, now known as Fairchild Tropical Botanical Garden, um, but his passion, Fairchild's passion, was the Kampong, his home in Coconut Grove. Right, right. What a, it's just, it's just like kind of like the melting pot. I, I'm trying to think of another place in history where a lot of cool stuff goes on at one time. I'm blank on an example, but there was a lot of interesting things that went on there. Um, the Fairchild Garden is. Uh, it's 
a center for the arts. I mean, I went there and saw a sculpture exhibit that was from Africa that was made of all these unusual woods, and it was incredible. I mean, it's used by the public there so much. Um, I don't want to deviate, but I don't want to forget this. I want to talk about National Geographic Mm -hmm. and David Fairchild and his involvement with that magazine. Okay. Is that... Can we kind of go that way now? Sure. Well, I mentioned that um, that David's wife, Marion, was the da- one of the daughters of Alexander Graham Bell. Bell actually had four children, two boys and two girls. The two boys died very young as children. Um, so, the, And the two daughters were very close. And um, actually it was his the other daughter and her husband who introduced um, David and Marion. And that his Grosvenor was their last name, Gilbert Grosvenor. He was the first editor of National Geographic. Okay, we're going to hold that thought and take a quick break with this Saturday's edition of the Master Gardener Hour. When gardening is part of your life, it brings so much: healthy eating, the freshest, most local produce, and playing in the dirt. At BonniePlants.com, you'll find all you need to succeed. When you grow bonnie veggie and herb plants in beds or containers, you'll know where your food comes from. Homegrown veggies and herbs ready for cooking, eating, and enjoying. And you did it. So get growing with Bonnie Plants. This is Michael Gano with Insight to Israel. Every day, the Israeli Defense Force finds itself on the front line of the war with the militant arm of Islam. Surrounded by enemies from within and without, they fight for the only Jewish state. Military service is mandatory, ladies serving two years and men serving three right out of high school. While young people in other democracies are busy traveling or attending university, Israeli men and women gear up for basic training. In a world of heads of state, politicians, ambassadors, diplomats, and a leftist media, many times our voice at the grassroots level is drowned out. So we started an ongoing project called Hershey's for Heroes. Patriot conservatives from all over the U.S. are sending Hershey's chocolate bars with a note of thanks for defending Israel. Won't you join us by sending a sweet message to the IDF? For information, please see my Facebook page at Michael Gano. Thank you, God bless Patriot conservatives, and God bless Israel in her struggle for sovereignty and security. Hi, I'm Paisley McDonald, and I'd like to invite you to listen to my show, At Home with Paisley, every week, Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern, for practical advice and stylish living for your home and office. Quick Stakes, that's Q-U-I-K Stakes, are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quickstake.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of Quick Stakes. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's Quick Stakes, Q-U-I-K Stakes, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. This is Peter Wallace inviting you to listen every Sunday morning to Day One with inspiring preachers from America's mainline churches on AmericasWebRadio.com. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.
This is Cheryl Linker, and I'm here with my guest today, Ann Parsons, and we are talking about David Fairchild and Compont in Coconut Grove. David was such a interesting man, and we're talking about his involvement with National Geographic magazine. So, Ann, finish your story on this. Well, um, as I said, David Fairchild was the son-in-law of Alexander Graham Bell, one of Alexander Graham Bell's son-in-laws. His other son-in-law was Gilbert Grosvenor, who became the first editor of National Geographic. Bell and Hubbard actually founded that publication, and David Fairchild served on their board of directors from 1905 to 1950. He also wrote eight articles, and one of those articles was about the Kampong. So he was part of that very influential uh, magazine, influencing world travel, how people thought about plants, plant introduction, was through that magazine, National Geographic. Also, it, the Groveners ended up purchasing a property adjacent to the Kampong in Miami, in Coconut Grove. Um, it was a similar piece of property, a long, narrow property that stretched from Douglas Road to Biscayne Bay, and the two families raised their children there. The cousins played back and forth. The Groveners named their property Hassar, which is a Turkish word, and um, originally the Kampong was seven acres. Now it's a total of 11 acres because um, several years ago, two of the trustees of the National Tropical Botanical Garden purchased some of the lots of the Hissar property when they became available for sale. And so um, the Kampong actually owns part of the Hissar property now for a total of 11 acres. Wow, that's neat. I, I forget National Geographic and how much we all love this magazine. The price, 350 and this is 1924, so that was pretty pricey back then. But guess what you got? 28 illustrations in full color. Now every page is in full color, but I imagine obviously photography and taking these fabulous photographs of what was inside were very expensive, and so it was mostly it was more of a um, article than just a. A photography um, exhibit, so that's kind of interesting to me. Um, the tropical, the plants that are at Kampong are incredible. There is a very famous tree there that I actually have a picture of myself under that I got a random stranger to take, and it's called the wedding tree. And we all know this tree, and a lot of us in Georgia maybe grow it in a pot in our sunrooms or something, maybe a different cultivar, but let's talk about that incredible tree. Well, it's what, what we called there one of our signature trees. Um, the wedding tree is a type of ficus uh, um, tree, so there are about 800 different kinds of ficus in the world, and this is um, one particular species. When Fairchild first brought it, um, they thought it was a new species of ficus, but have now determined it's not a new species. But at, this was the first tree that was, or I think his, one of the first trees he and his wife planted, not the first one, but one of the early ones that he and his wife planted after they built the home. The house they built there was built in 1928. And um, there was this terrace coming off of the house, and they planted this very small ficus tree in the corner. It now is the dominant feature in in um, off the house. And it's 
commonly known there as the wedding tree. One of Fairchild's daughters was married under the tree, and subsequently a number of family friends were asked to be married under the tree. Now weddings, special weddings are held there, um, and the legend is that all the weddings that are that have been held under the wedding tree, there have been no divorces. So brides especially like to hear that. Okay. We need to, like, do some research on that. That's great. I mean, people be flocking there from all over the world to get married there. That may be a secret that we shouldn't have said on national uh, on a national podcast. That's great. Um, the Are there any banyan trees on the property? There is that... Uh, that is a type of banyan. So, so all, I'm com- I, I mean, I am a master gardener, but my tropicals, I sometimes get confused. So a ficus is a banyan tree. Or it's a banyan tree is a ficus, but not all ficus trees are banyans. Okay. So a banyan is also the way it grows with the aerial roots coming right. down. So not all ficus trees grow that way. Not all ficus trees are banyans. But all banyans are ficus trees. Okay, I understand. So there are a number of ficus trees as okay. well as banyan trees on that property. Okay, okay. And it's it's just gorgeous. You know, I know this is a gardening, you know, master gardening, but we have to talk about the cool house because it's such a cool place, and it is almost like, you're outside, but you're inside when you're in this house. So could you describe kampong uh, to our listeners? Well, the word kampong is a Malaysian word, which means like a compound or a group of houses around a garden. And when Fairchild bought the property, there were a number of small houses scattered on the property and a number of fruit trees, and he felt it had the feeling of a kampong, which is where the name comes from. The house was designed by an architect, Edward Clarence Dean. What I find interesting is that Edward Clarence Dean was someone they had worked with before. Mrs. Fairchild um, had had him design their home in Maryland called In the Woods. Now, often when you, you see an architect's work, it's very similar. You can look at one house and another house, and you see the similarities. You know that it's done by a particular architect. But with Edward Clarence Dean, you can look at their home in Maryland, which is still there. It's, I think it's part of a golf course community. And you look at the Kampong house, and they're very different. They're, you wouldn't know the same person had designed each home. And Edward Clarence Dean had never been to Asia, but he designed this home with a very distinctive Asian feel. So when you walk into uh, down the sidewalk as you're walking towards the um, towards the bay, the house is divided into two main sections, and it's connected by a breezeway. And that is the iconic view of the Kampong taken through that breezeway, looking towards Biscayne Bay. And that house was deliberately sited on that location, looking out towards the bay for that view because you have a view of the bay and um, Key Biscayne, it's unparalleled. Then as you come into the breezeway, on one side of the house, on the right side of the house, was the living room and uh, the living quarters. On the left side of the house, dining room, kitchen. And uh, so you have this very distinctive set of living spaces divided, connected by the breezeway. Everything was open, lots of French doors that opened to the elements. There was no air conditioning, and yet you always have a 
breeze coming off the bay. And so that's what kept things cool. Deep overhangs. Um, they used a lot of materials, building materials that are commonly found in Florida at that time were commonly found in Florida. And um, the other interesting thing about the house is it's built up on what's called the the uh, ridge, the Miami Ridge or um, Silver Don't know Bluff. That. What is that? Well, there's a ridge that extends from uh, a little nor- further north in Coconut Grove and goes further south down in, um, towards Homestead. And this is the high part in Miami. It's ranges What's from the elevation? 14 feet above sea level. Wow. But big time. That's big in Miami. It is. And so back in the time when the Fairchilds were building homes and many of the homes were built in Miami, everything was built above that ridge. And is that why there's so many exclusive great neighborhoods in that area? Yes. And okay, that makes those areas sense. have not those areas have not flooded. So the Kampong, even being right on the bay with hurricanes coming in, has never flooded. And even at Fairchild Tropical Garden, there's an upper area and a lowlands area. So most of the buildings are built on that upper area because the ridge extends through that garden as well. And so by doing that, they prevented flooding from hurricanes. So we have a beautiful view of the bay, but we're 14 to 18 feet above sea level. And that makes a huge difference in that uh, climate. So the the home is um, is a great example of uh, Asian style architecture, very unique in Miami, and um, also very um, iconic for that for that property. Because once you've seen that house, you know exactly. You know you can recognize it from any picture. What is in the part of the house in the living area on the right? What is the giant wall hanging going up the stairs? This incredible, it looks like it's made from a giant tree trunk. Or Almost. Something? It's made from a uh, tree root. It's carved from a tree a root. root. Uh, mm-hmm. And um, that is a Garuda. So that's an, an interesting story. Um, what in, is a Garuda? Well, it's a mythical figure. It's, uh, it's from uh, the... Um, Buddhist religion. It's a mythical figure, and uh, Indonesian Airlines is actually named Garuda Airlines. Um, so the Garuda actually became uh, sort of the symbol of the icon, but not in David Fairchild's time. That was subsequently after the next owner bought the property, uh, a woman named Kay Sweeney purchased the property. It was through her and her gift to the National Tropical Botanical Garden that it that it was gifted to a, to become part of that public garden. And I will interrupt in here and say Kay Sweeney is no lightweight in horticulture and her impact that she made on this region and this and on Kampong. You you want to let's talk about Kay for just a minute because she is she's kept it going. She did. And, you know, after um, Fairchild passed away in the 50s, his wife passed away in the early 60s, and there was some discussion about what would happen to the property at that time. So the Kay Sweeney and her husband, who was still living at the time, um, they actually knew the Fairchilds, had met them um, in, their, in Washington, D.C., mm-hmm. and she found out the property was for sale and purchased it from the Fairchild family. So Case Sweeney is often uh, credited, I think the Miami Herald, Georgia Tasker, the garden writer for the Herald, actually credited uh, Case Sweeney as being the um, angel of the Kampong because through her purchase of that property, 
um, she had the vision uh, to keep it intact as a botanical garden. She made changes to the house, but all the changes were in keeping with that Asian theme and um, and recognizing Fairchild's influence. She hired um, a man to work for her as her head gardener, her head horticulturist, Larry Shockman. Larry ultimately became the director of the Kampong after it became part of the National Tropical Botanical Garden. And so many new plants were introduced with, through Larry's travels and through his work, but all in keeping with that Asian theme and what Fairchild had started there. And so Kay Sweeney is really recognized as um, being in the angel of the Kampong for that reason. Absolutely. I mean, and, and credit goes to her. Um, what If you were back in Coconut Grove, this is kind of off the beaten track, but and you wanted to share a glass of wine out on the deck behind there. After this break, I'm going to talk about that and let hear who Ann Parsons would like to spend some time with there. Hi, I'm Paisley McDonald, and I'd like to invite you to listen to my show, At Home with Paisley, every week, Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern, for practical advice and stylish living for your home and office. Quick Stakes. That's Q-U-I-K stakes are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quickstake.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of quick stakes. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's quick stakes, Q-U-I-K stakes, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. This is Peter Wallace, inviting you to listen every Sunday morning to Day One with inspiring preachers from America's mainline churches on AmericasWebRadio.com. When gardening is part of your life, it brings so much. Healthy eating, the freshest, most local produce, and playing in the dirt. At BonniePlants.com, you'll find all you need to succeed. When you grow bonnie veggie and herb plants in beds or containers, you'll know where your food comes from. Homegrown veggies and herbs ready for cooking, eating, and enjoying. And you did it. So get growing with Bonnie Plants. This is America's WebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. This is Cheryl Linker, and I'm here with Ann Parsons, and we are talking about the compound in Coconut Grove. And I just kind of ask Ann a loaded question on who she would like to spend some time with in the late afternoon and share a glass of wine with out on the property. Ann? Well, I would love to share a glass of wine with David and Mary and Fairchild and really have a chance to talk with them about their travels, their what influenced them, the people they met. Um, that was something I think Fairchild commonly did. He invited people over and they shared a glass of wine on, on their terrace. And um, one of the people I have had the pleasure of meeting is one of his grandchildren. His granddaughter, Helen Pancoast, is a neighbor, still lives in Coconut Grove, and um, she was a wonderful friend and resource, and um, it was 
great to sit with her and just talk about her memories of her grandfather. She was a little girl. Um, she remembers growing up on the Kampong, playing there. Um, Fairchild's influence, her grandfather's influence on her and um, exploring for plants and being interested in plants. And I, I think that would be a wonderful afternoon to spend with uh, David and Marion. Oh, they, they're a, quite a handsome couple. I have a picture here of their, um, I guess, a wedding, early their wedding, wedding mm-hmm. picture. And they are both quite handsome. Is their granddaughter involved in horticulture? She is. She um, married a, a landscape architect named Lester Pancoast, and um, she their own home is exquisite, beautifully. Um, it's just full of plants. I'll and have to crash her house next time <laughs> I'm down there. Helen is a, is a great friend of the Kampong and a Fairchild Tropical Botanical Garden, and um, she has traveled many, many places in her own life and um, and also her children and their influence in horticulture. So it's definitely a family legacy. That It's very, very interesting. And I have a, I don't even know what it is. It's a book, but it's about the Kampong. But it also shows a lot of the um, fundraising that's done. And it looks like an incredible place for a party. It is. I mean, absolutely a stunning place. Is it like rented for parties or? It is available um, for parties. In fact, one of the biggest parties, the fundraiser that you're looking at their, the pictures now is um, Bally High, which is actually uh, coming up in April. Um, it comes in April every year. And this is the Kampong's fundraiser, a wine and food festival. Well, it looks like you're in Malaysia. I mean, it really looks cool. It's, so did they, have they raised a lot of money for the Kampong? They have. And uh, this is actually one of the uh, – was one of the very first uh, wine and food festivals before they became – now many places have that type of uh, fundraiser, but this was one of the very first ones and still one of the best. And, uh, it, you know, th- where else can you be in Miami on this private estate overlooking Biscayne Bay with some of the best it's food beautiful. restaurants in Miami? It's, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. And, you know, before we go, I really – I'm a huge national park person, and I want to talk about – um, Mr. Fairchild's involvement in the Everglades. So I'm just, I didn't, it's really interesting. In your presentation, you had a map of the country, and I, I don't remember the year, but it had current national parks, proposed national parks, and maybe dreamed of national parks. But of course, they were all out west, you know, the big guns, you know, Yosemite and Yellowstone and Glacier. Interestingly enough, the Smoky Mountain National Park, which is in my neck of the woods, and I've spent many, many, many days there, it was not even recognized. It was not a national park when he got involved in making the Everglades a national park. So anyway, let's talk about that. Well, the Everglades is a a fascinating story, and... um, Many people really don't realize that David Fairchild had a role in Everglades becoming a national park because of his role in bringing new plants into the country. But he really had an interest in conservation and um, native plants as well. And after he um, had bought the Kampong and was living there, I mentioned one of his friends, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, um, 
So through meeting different people, Fairchild became a part of what was called the Tropic Everglades Park Association. And he actually was the first president of that association. And their first meeting was held in the campong, in the, in the living room. And what year was this? That was in um, 1929. Mm-hmm. And so um, he... The Kampong, the, his, the historic living room is how we often refer to that, uh, to that room. So that meeting um, is ultimately what led to the formation of Everglades National Park. That, took an, that happened actually in 1947, so it was a long process. Fairchild was president of the association only for the, uh, the first year or two, and then he stepped down, and a man named Ernest Coe um, became president and took over the leadership. And the reason Fairchild stepped down, he writes about this in his book, is he really wanted to focus on the Kampong, his passion. He was going to focus on that, and he felt he had done everything he could do. He got it started. Towards hey, starting something and right. having that idea and putting it in motion. That's really interesting. I didn't know that it took that long to form a national park from 1929 to 1947. Well, part of their uh, battle was um, the administration in Washington, D.C., had they had never had a park that didn't have a mountain in it. And so a lot of the, the time... Oh, my God. I'm going to, like, crack up. That's great. Okay. So part of what they had to do (laughs) was show why the Everglades was a significant area and needed to be preserved because there is no mountain in it. And um, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, who wrote The River of Grass, of course, that was very influential at that time. But it just was a process. That's still published? I think it's probably out of print as um, as some of Fairchild's books, but definitely worth to, looking for. We need for. to work on those, getting those books. That would be great addition to have in our, you know, to have in a library. I would like to read that. But so they, so she really was the book written, and then that kind of helped move things along. Yes, yes, she wrote the book, and um, she really coined that phrase. She was working for the Miami Herald, and it was through that that she coined this phrase, "the river of grass." which really epitomizes what the Everglades is. It is a river, but it moves so slowly that you don't realize that the water is moving. And I really didn't know that. What, did, what river is it? Do you know? I, I don't know. It's, it's just the way the, the water is moving through Florida, you know, from the north part of the state down to the south right. part of the state. It's the whole I mean, I've been on an airboat over it just one time years ago, and I've driven across the... Alligator Alley, but right. I've never really got to spend very much time there. But well, it, that water body of water influences a lot of the climate in South Florida and um, the drinking water in South Florida. It's uh, yeah. it's a very right. influential right. body of water. So. Right. You know, and it's been such a pleasure having you here today, and I really think this is such a topic. I think people all over the country are interested in tropicals. I mean, I know I see it in Georgia because I see all these random tropicals planted that some of them don't didn't make it through this winter, but, you know, people love that whole look. I mean, I'm a sailor. I like the Caribbean. You know, I love being around tropicals. You know, I mean, I think that's such a good good thing to educate our listeners about a couple of minutes left um tell us a little bit you're now you've moved to atlanta 
were you here during all the freezing cold and snow? I was. Oh, okay. So that was kind of different for you. Yes. Anne is the director, as I said, um, and we'll have to have her back to talk about Smith Gilbert because it's a wonderful, wonderful place that I have spent a lot of hours working as a Cobmaster Gardener because we volunteer there. And she is the new director there. So what's your favorite thing about Smith Gilbert? Wow, that's a loaded question. I am discovering so many new things there. The plants, the depth of the plant collection, the, the fall's colors were spectacular, but the spring blooms, I love every day something new is popping out. I love that it's such a variety of plants. Um, the wooded trails, it's beautiful to just walk quietly among the wooded trails. Something interesting for the month of May is um, we have a sponsor, Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, and with their support, we're offering a two-for-one admission. So if you buy one adult admission, you get one admission free. Mm-hmm. And um, that's during the month of May, and we'd love for people to come out. The roses will be blooming this yeah, month, and uh, the rose garden. There. And our and the master gardeners are uh, definitely a part of that. They're, right. they're led by the Dr. Bruce Gillette, and they're known as the Rose Warriors. Right. And they're the ones that keep our rose garden spectacular. So, um, Smith Gilbert. Now it's owned by the city of Kennesaw, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it is an old um, Georgian style. Home mm-hmm. on many acres, sixteen acres, sixteen now. acres in Kennesaw, Georgia, and two gentlemen bought the home and developed this incredible garden. They put incredible sculpture in it. It's just a very, very interesting place. But it's interesting because it has so many different aspects of gardening, but. This is something that, you know, we could talk all day about all the different areas. I mean, they have an incredible conifer garden, rose garden, woodland. Do you still have the bonsais there? We do. We have the bonsai collection, and we are um, very fortunate in that we're getting several additional trees from um, Dr. Gilbert. Um, he's bringing some down later in April or coming up in April, and um, we're going to have all those on display and for the public it's actually the only bonsai collection in the state of georgia open to the public the one that we have there so it's definitely worth a trip it is an incredible collection the second saturday of every month we have a bonsai consultant rodney clemens who's there with a bonsai study group this was actually a group founded by dr Uh, gilbert and they are have been meeting for i think around 25 years now and they come every Saturday, so if people are out on that on the second Saturday of the month, uh, they're welcome to come by and uh, talk with Rodney and some of the volunteers about bonsai. It is an art and a science. And it's a scary place to be if you're a klutz when you're wa- working in a garden because these are gorgeous and they're big and they're old and they're perfect. And you can walk in and amongst them. And if you're got your gardening boots on, and I was always so afraid to be around them, I was always scared that I was going to like bump one. Um, your attitude toward you know horticulture today. What what's one final thought that you think that you're making you happy that's going on in horticulture today? 
Well, one of the things I'm really um, pleased to see is with botanical gardens, there's um, a focus on bringing children and families in. And at Smith-Gilbert Gardens, we have the um, children's garden. Um, Many gardens across the country are building special areas, children's gardens. And I think the more we can do to connect children and nature, the better we are. I totally agree. Thank you for listening to this Saturday's edition of the Master Garden.